So get your phones, get your Bibles, whatever it is, Bibles at the back, it's on the screen as well, but good to have your Bible in front of you to follow along with this story. And we are in Exodus 15, 22 through to 16, 21. Exodus 15, 22 through to 16, 21, it says this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. Uh, they went there three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because it was bitter, therefore they named it Marah. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made, them, made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that are put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where, they were, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, "What would they? What what they we had? Uh, what uh, would they we had died by the hand of the of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full?" For you have brought us out, of the, out, of, uh, out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in, a law, in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepared what they, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of, of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you uh, out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For, uh, for, are we that, uh, for, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives, you, uh, when the Lord gives in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the, the bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared to them in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And, uh, and Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall, take each, uh, you shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in your tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some more and some less. Uh, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever had gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some, uh, and some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. 
Morning by morning, they gathered it, each, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. This is the word of the Lord. Hey church, how's it going? Good to be here. I'm loving the vibe of 4pm. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm, I'm Rob, I'm one of the elders here at City Light. Um, I wanted to start by firstly thanking the ministry staff for the chance, the privilege to be able to, to preach today. But I think also in the, the spirit of gratitude and thankfulness today, that's, I think that's me, um, I just wanted to thank Gav and Jez. <laughs> like that? Cool. Um, I wanted to thank Gav and Jez as well for um, just the way that they love Jesus and serve us every week as well, I think. Um, I know it's only a small part of our, yeah, actually, that's, that's really good. <laughs> um, I know, it's only a, a really, I know it's only one part of their role, but particularly, you know, over the last little while preparing a sermon, um, it just really reminded me of how much it takes to kind of prepare a sermon, to prepare the Word of God. It's literally like writing a 5,000-word essay every week. If I was back at uni and I was looking at subjects to sign up to, and there was a, and a, a subject that had a weekly 5,000-word assignment, I'm not sure that I would have um, signed up for that. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of... Thank you guys for all you guys do for us as well. Um, but look, let me, um, let's kick off. Let me, get, um, let me lead us in prayer as we, we get into God's Word. Father, we thank you that your mercies are new to us again today. Thanks that we can meet freely to worship you, to celebrate the good news of the gospel. In the songs that we sing, as we hear you speak to us in your Word, in the conversations that we have with one another. Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us, who speaks to us, and we pray for the ministry of your Spirit right now. Give us soft, humble hearts, open ears to listen to what you have to say to us, and may it result in a greater adoration and worship of you and of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. Well, I don't know about you, probably similar to you. I love a good holiday, whether that's staying here in Sydney, whether that's going away, it doesn't really matter. I love that chance to be able to take time off, to rest, to recharge, and maybe to spend time with family, but just to kind of get away, rest, and take stock. And there was, there was one particular trip, it was fairly soon after my wife Danielle and I got married, um, and we're about to take a trip away with my side of the family for a few weeks, and that was, um, there was nine of us there. And going back a little bit further, before I got married, often if I went to take leave from work, um, quite often I'd try and kind of get away for a little bit, and some of that time was spent with people, but there was also a fair bit of that where I spent time by myself. I actually liked that time to be able to run, by, run my own agenda, go at my own speed, I could kind of call the shots. And so in the lead up to this time away, um, I'd spent, I think, a lot of time thinking about how I was going to spend my time. But it didn't really enter my mind that it wasn't just my time away, there were eight other people. And so my wife Danielle can attest to this, was, there were probably way too many times during that trip where it was really difficult to be around me. Suddenly I wasn't able to just call the shots or run off my own schedule. It was about planning to do things together as a bunch of us. So compromise, doing things that we all wanted to do, who would have thought, right? Um, and the number of conversations, there were so many conversations with Danielle where in such a spoilt way, I think, I'd complain that I couldn't do what I wanted to do, where I wanted to, and when I wanted to do it. 
And just kind of thinking back to that, it kind of makes me cringe a little bit. The sense of entitlement, the complaining, the self-centeredness, I was out of control. I had completely lost perspective that there was, this such, there was such a great chance for us to connect and spend time as a family. Now, I don't think that's a, a unique situation. Occasionally, I like to go down a YouTube rabbit warren, and a lot of the times, I like to watch the, the bits from comedy acts from famous comedians. And there was one I remember a few years ago, some of you may know it, um, where a guy was talking about a recent flight that he'd taken, somewhere in the US, I think. And this was a few years ago where Wi-Fi on planes was like a brand new thing. It was, it had just been, it had just come out. And so this guy, this comedian's on the plane and he's sitting next to someone and the PA, someone comes over the PA and says, you can open up your laptop, you can go on the internet, you can check your emails or do whatever you want to do. And so this guy gets his laptop out and starts working away. And very soon after that, it breaks down. And so someone comes over the loudspeaker and says, look, I'm really sorry on behalf of the airline, I apologize really sorry for the inconvenience. And I won't use the language that this, this um, comedian used, but in, um, he basically said this guy next to him flipped out and was like, this is ridiculous. Like, why is this thing not working? And the comedian asked, how quickly does the world owe him something he knew existed only 10 seconds ago? <laughs> now, the delivery is pretty funny. It's a, it's a pretty funny example, but I think there's also an ugliness there. Entitlement is an ugly thing. It can be an ugly human trait, I think. We don't, look, we don't like it in ourselves, and we don't like it in other people. I think it'll come up on the screen. Paul Tripp, who's a pastor in Philadelphia, he wrote an article a few years ago talking about needs and desires, and he really unpacks this idea of the danger of desiring something and thinking that you need that thing. He says that the first step is that you feel entitled to that desire, and then he says this. He says, to entitle means to give someone a legal right or a just claim to receive or to do something. Once you feel entitled to something or someone, you believe it's your right to demand it. After entitlement and demand comes judgment. We'll judge the love of others by their willingness and or ability to provide for us that which we've declared a need. If it's provided quickly, I treat you with respect and love. But if you delay or refuse or you're unable to provide, I'll make life difficult for you. And I think we today can have the audacity to do the same thing with God, can't we? I know I can. We think that we can call the shots on what we need. We can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we know what we need more than God does. We think we need a bigger place when the one that we're currently in has running water and functioning appliances. We think that we need a newer car when the one that we drive at the moment is reliable and functions as it should. Now, to be really clear, of course, in and of, the, in and of themselves, these things aren't necessarily bad things. It's okay to move into a bigger house or to upgrade your car as long as those desires don't consume you. But I think there is a real danger that we can have an entitlement that can even seep into the Christian life, where we think we should call the shots and we treat God as some sort of a pocket genie just to whip out whenever we want something. And I wonder if that's something that you think you can relate to. Can you see evidences of this entitlement that leads to demand, that leads to judgment that Paul Tripp talks about? It might be horizontally as we look at the world around us, or it could be vertically as we demand or we judge God for not giving us something. And perhaps it's because we care more about a comfortable life or the gifts of God rather than the gift giver himself. 
And perhaps I need to be really honest with myself and think whether I would rather the kingdom more than I do the king. But I think if there's one antidote to ingratitude or entitlement, it's to as much as we possibly can, I think, see how richly generous God has been to us in the giving of His Son. And that now, by His grace, where He's saved, loved, adopted children. Now today, as, as Gav, I think, said, um, this is our last week looking at Exodus for a little while. I think we're going to pick it up a little bit later this year. But I think we're going to see that these dangers of entitlement, this misplaced expectation, is not something that's just unique to us. It's something that's been going on for thousands of years. And as a bit of context, um, the book of Exodus is a way, it's kind of a book of two halves. Part one is kind of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the wilderness. They're saved and rescued from Egypt. And part two is about them trekking to this place called Sinai, and God is going to teach them what it means to be His people. Or in kind of Christianese, part one is about God, uh, Israel's salvation, part two is about Israel's sanctification. And the, the bit that we're getting today is this kind of interlude between the two halves of, of Exodus. And it really does, I think, take a sharp turn from this song of praise that Israel gives up to God in chapter 15. They're trekking to Sinai, and literally three days after they've left Egypt, they start criticizing God and, and Moses for even rescuing them, as if they would have been far better off back in slavery. Right now, we're told, oh, sorry, at the start of Exodus, we're told that Israel groaned in their slavery. Right now, we see that Israel grumbles. They grumble against God, they grumble against Moses. God has already performed miraculous acts of His power to Israel. He's brought down plagues. He's even rescued Egypt to the, um, Israel from Egypt to the extent that when they left, they even plundered the Egyptians, just as God had said that they would at the very start of the book. They've even just sung in, in chapter 15, verses 2 and, and of 13, they've said, "'The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation.'" In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. But that was days ago now. They're hungry and thirsty now. It's extraordinary. So what's going on? Well, I think today's passage really comes down to three testings or hardships that Israel goes through. And we get to see their response, which I think has something really important for us to hear today as well. And I think this if I'm really honest, this is a textbook example of a story in the Bible where it is so easy for us, or it's so easy for me, to look down at Israel for being so forgetful of the God that leads them. We'd like to think maybe that we would have known better. Surely Israel, this is at a time where it's so obvious that God is present and He's leading you. He's brought down plagues, He's part of the Red Sea, He's... Um, He's even appeared to them, it says, in a pillar of cloud and fire as they've left Egypt. Surely, Israel, like how on earth could you act like this? But I think, too, it is so easy for us to fall into the trap of forgetting who God is and what He's done. And I think that's because there's something actually happening that's deeper at the heart of Israel than grumbling. Grumbling is certainly down there, but I think, actually, if you peel, peel the layers back... There's something deeper than that grumbling that we can even wrestle with thousands of years later. And that is, at the heart of grumbling, I think, is discontent, misplaced expectations, perhaps, of what it means to be the people of God, a desire for control. 
Yet I think this story also reveals something amazing about God himself. In response to Israel's complaining, God graciously provides for their needs. In spite of what they deserve, God is faithful to his people. Even when his, faith, his people are faithless, he's faithful. And I think that's something that is also the same for us today. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Even when we don't know what we need from God, God does and he provides. And I think that's something that can bring great comfort to us as God's people. So I think that the big idea that we're going to see today is that God provides for his people even when they don't deserve it. He provides what they need when they need it. God provides. That's kind of the big idea today. But if you're a note taker, there's kind of three kind of movements or, or parts to today's, um, t- today's time. That's uh, a disgruntled people, a God who provides, and a God who meets our needs. So let's kick off a disgruntled people. Um, if you follow along with me, Exodus 15 verse 22, it says this. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That, was, that, that is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. So Israel has just left Egypt. They're now on their way to Sinai, and three days later, just three days, they get thirsty and they start grumbling. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course, like, that's not that big a deal, is it? They've just left. They're in a a hot desert in the middle of the Middle East. It's hot. It's dry. They haven't found water for three days. It's fair enough, right? But on the other hand, I don't think it's the right response. We've seen in the last kind of 15 chapters, we've read about God's incredible displays of power, His sovereignty. We've seen the special place that Israel has in the heart of God. And God doesn't, God doesn't just save them, He provides this really dramatic reminder that He's leading His people. The entire time when God leads His people out, He leads them in a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He leads and he doesn't abandon his people. But yet we see at the very first hurdle, Israel forgets. They forget the provision of God. They fail. But how does God respond? Well, he graciously provides safe drinking water. He provides for his people what they need when they need it. But notice something that God says Directly after that, in verse 25, he says this, he says, There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So we see there, hang on, God provides, but then He tests His people? Where's that coming from? He's he set them apart as His people. He saved them. Is He trying to trip them up? Well, I don't think that's what God's doing. I think what God is doing here is He's teaching them that to be His people, they must also listen to Him. They are to trust Him. They are to pay attention to His commands. See, Israel needs to learn that they cannot presume upon the kindness and favor of God. God has rescued them from something, but He's also rescued them to something. They haven't just been rescued from slavery so that they can live completely autonomously apart from anything. No, they've been saved from slavery 
to be God's holy set-apart people so that they would be a light to the nations and bring God's blessing to the world. So how does Israel go after this? That leads to the second story, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough food for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. So we see here again, God, sorry, Israel is taking grumbling to a whole new level in a really stinging way. They seem to have completely forgotten how bad things were for them in Egypt. They seem to have completely lost perspective. Now, at work, um, a couple of years ago, I'd been doing kind of the same role for a couple of years, and I'd got, gotten pretty good at it. I was pretty unconsciously competent. And then an, an opportunity about, about 12 months ago came up to take a brand new role, doing something completely different, different way of thinking, kind of more of a getting out of that day-to-day operational kind of stuff and operate at a more higher strategic level. And I was looking forward to it. I'd, I'd kind of felt like I'd grown stale a little bit in the role that I was in. So I was really kind of looking excited, um, looking forward to this role. But it took me a long time to adjust to that. And I think, you know, of course, part of that is natural. You're going into a new role. There's teething issues. It's something to get used to. But I think there was a fair, a fair bit of time where I wanted to hold on to what I was previously doing. I wanted to continue doing the same sorts of tasks or responsibilities that I had. And that's, I think, because I'd almost had this somewhat separation anxiety from what I was used to. It's a bit of an imperfect illustration, but I think it says a little bit of something that's happening at the moment here for Israel. For 400 years, all these people have known is slavery in Egypt, and suddenly their situation's changed. They know they they can't go back, but there's almost this separation anxiety from what they're used to. But we know that God is all about change, and this is part of His plan. And yet again, in story two, how does God respond? Well, He provides graciously for them, in the form of bread every morning, verse 4, and quail every evening, verse 13. What they need, when they need it. And I think it's, it's a pretty incredible scene. I don't know if you can picture, like, bread and quail coming every morning. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy, but um, that's, that's what happens. That's what it says happened. And he tells them each day to gather, not too much, not too little, but enough for that day and to do the same thing every day that follows. He told them to gather twice as much on the sixth day as well, to last them for the sixth and the seventh days. That's because the seventh day was a Sabbath day, a day of rest. They weren't to go out. And it also said that they weren't to store up any food for the next day. So what's happening here, this is a call for Israel to trust that God was going to provide for them today, tomorrow, the next day, and so on. Or as Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, it's to trust God to give them their daily bread. And then again in verse 4, there's mention that God is going to test Israel, and they fail again. Some of the time, they try to keep part of that day's food for the next day, 
or they went out on the Sabbath looking for more food. Rather than trusting God to provide for them each day, they've struggled with not being the ones that are in control. And they want to lean on themselves, so then they try to store up food. They look to gather food on the Sabbath. And God asks in verse 28, He says, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? But again, I think it could be so easy for us to shake our heads at Israel. But I think this is a lesson that always looks simple for us, who sit here and look at other people trying to obey God. Let's look at story three, and it's, um, we didn't read it at the start, but there's a really subtle and I think important difference in this section. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for the water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Did you notice what the difference was in that passage? In the first two stories, it says that God tested Israel. But now we see, verse 2, that Israel tested God. In verse 7, Moses even names the places Massa and Meribah because Israel quarreled and tested God. And we see here, I think, how far wrong this relationship is going. Israel fails to trust God again, and he asks God again to prove his presence and his faithfulness. Let's stop for a minute. Let's let's press on this issue. Maybe maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, it's it's not that big a deal, is it? That's pretty harmless. But I think a grumbling that goes unchecked, a discontent, misplaced expectations, maybe a desire for control that goes unchecked, it can be toxic. It can lead to a heart that becomes hard, a heart that does not want to live in obedience or trust in the Lord. Tim Chester, who's a a pastor in England, has this to say up on the screen about grumbling. He says, first... Grumbling grows because it spreads to others. It's infectious. Think how those grumbling conversations unfold. We spread discontent. We reinforce another's grumbles. None of us are immune to the contagion. Someone else's grumbling gives us all the excuse our hearts need to indulge in it ourselves. Second, grumbling grows because it hardens our hearts. Grumbling presumes to put God to the test. It scrutinizes God. It questions His goodness. We become the judge and God is in the dock. Grumbling puts God on trial and finds him guilty. He has failed to deliver the life I want. I deserve more than this. I need better than this. And I think this is a warning that God gives us in other parts of his word as well. Take it from Psalm 95 verses 8 to 9. It says, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at the day at Massa in the wilderness. This is what we've just been reading about, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Or the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, it says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, for those that know me well, there are probably few people that are as directionally challenged as I am. I'm that Paul guy that you see on the streets 
with my phone up in front of me, kind of turning around a little bit, trying to map, like match up what I see in front of me with what's on my screen. I even, when I leave this building, I kid you, know, I kid you not, I've been here for a bit over three years, and people are saying, you know, let's go to Balmain or let's go to Roselle. I've actually got to stop and think, okay, all right, that's, that's Balmain, that's Roselle. I've got, and sometimes I get them mixed up. It's, it's pretty bad. Um, but the closer I am to home, I'm, I'm generally not too bad, but the further and further away that you take me, the more disoriented, the more disconnected I become. Well, church, the whole point, I think, of what God did for Israel in Egypt was that so his people would know that he is the Lord. The whole point of Israel observing the Passover was so that they would know who the Lord is and what he's done for them. There's this whole strong emphasis across Jewish culture, even now, of this idea of remembering. And we get, we get elements of it in our... our um, kind of Western white culture as well, but there's this idea of remembering. They're constantly to remember so that they wouldn't forget, so that they wouldn't become disoriented or disconnected from who, were, who God was or from their home. Well, to finish the point, I think we get a little hint in this passage of the danger of Israel's grumbling and where it ends up. Exodus 16 verse 35 says, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Now, if you're, if you're someone who um, wants to kind of keep reading after Exodus, that 40 years is what we read about in the book of Numbers, when Israel fails to go into the land that the Lord had for them. So they didn't trust or obey God, and so God basically declares that they would wander that desert for 40 years until that generation died out. It's, it's, um, it's pretty full on. So that's the first section, a disgruntled people. The second part is a God who provides. Let's come back to something that we've kind of just touched on. But back in um, Exodus 15, if you look at verse 26, it says this. So it says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So we see here the benefits, right, to Israel if they remain obedient to God. Yet in all three cases, Israel grumbles, they fail, they lose sight of the God that was leading them. But then again, in all three cases, God graciously provides exactly what they need when they need it. In story one, Exodus 15, 25, says the Lord showed him, Moses, a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. And then we see even at the very end of that passage, that end of that chapter, God leads them to this kind of oasis in the desert where they get to enjoy God's provision and His abundance. In story 2, chapter 16, 11, God says, I have heard the grumbling of of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. God is literally providing them their daily bread. In story three, God responds by telling Moses to take his staff and go to the rock of Horeb. And God says in, in 17 verse 6, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So we see in all three stories here, Israel fails to, to, to pay attention to God's commands, yet even in their failure, God provides. And I think that's because this passage is both meant to challenge, but it's also meant to bring comfort. Even when Israel is faithless, God is faithful. And I think that's the same for us today. We must remember that God calls His people to obedience, yes. 
But we can also take heart that even when we turn our backs or want nothing to do with Him, He's faithful. Even when we fail to pursue God or to be obedient to Him, or or we trust that our way is better than His, or we, we trust in our ability to provide, God doesn't walk away and just say, good riddance. And I think that leads to our third part, God, a God who meets our needs. So we've seen so far, right, that God provides for Israel despite their grumbling. But what does that mean for us? Can we trust God to provide in the same way? Well, to answer that, let's go forward in time in the biblical narrative to the book of John in the New Testament, John 6. Now, this is fairly early in, in Jesus' public ministry, and he's, he's been traveling around. He's now in, in kind of the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, and he's got this large crowd following him, 5,000 people. And um, there's kind of questions, you know, um, how, you know, how are these people going to eat? And Jesus manages to rustle up five loaves of bread, two fish, and he manages to perform a miracle, and he, and he provides for all of them. They all get to eat. And Jesus takes that opportunity to tell people not to work for food that spoils, but for food to, that endures to eternal life, and to believe in the one the Father has sent. Now, this isn't loss on these people. As good Israelites, they're kind of feeling the Exodus vibes to what Jesus is saying. And so they ask Jesus in um, 6 verse 30 to 31, what sign will you give us so that we believe you? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But this is how Jesus responds. He says in 32, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So this is, I think, pretty profound what's going on here. And Jesus isn't just a new Moses, it's actually flipped the other way around. Moses is actually a type of Jesus. The manna in the wilderness was just a shadow of Jesus, who doesn't just provide bread for people, he is the bread, he's the bread of life. And he's come down from heaven like manna to satisfy God's people. He satisfies our hunger and thirst just as God did for Israel. But this satisfaction that Jesus provides is beyond just this provision of bread. Because Jesus gives eternal life. He doesn't always give us what we want or what we think is best. But he says that he promises to meet our deepest needs. He gives us identity, fulfillment, relationship, forgiveness. But I think we can too often, like Israel, grumble. That we don't get what we want or what we think God should give us. And we think that we can find satisfaction, rather, in pursuing things that cannot endure. Things that might be good, good in and of themselves, but they cannot satisfy or last. Money and wealth that can disappear just like that. A career, um, maybe a career that we think that will satisfy us, or that we go into because we want to amass status or power. Maybe we pursue the opinions of others, or that perfect body, whatever that means. But these things are all fleeting. They will not last. Or even if they do last, they'll be robbed from us when we die. In one of his books, Tim Keller reminds us that you don't really know Jesus is all you need 
until Jesus is all you have. Because the only exception for us is Jesus. If we look to Jesus to be enough, He promises that there will never come a day where He is not enough. Jesus invites us to look at our lives from the perspective of the cross and from eternity. But I don't think we just need to trust that Jesus satisfies. We can also confidently trust that He is the one that bears our judgment. We see in Exodus 17, Israel stands guilty before God. And yet, how does God respond? He asks Moses to strike the rock with his staff. This is the staff that Moses brought down to bring judgment on Pharaoh and of Egypt. And from this rock comes streams of water that quenches the thirst of Israel. Well, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see that he is the true, and if you will, better rock. The one who took the blow of judgment that we deserve as guilty sinners, and the one out of whom now blessing flows for God's people. He was the only sinless one, the the one who was tempted himself in the wilderness, yet did not sin. The one who suffered an unjust and a a barbaric trial and death, yet he did not grumble. He did not curse those who, who inflicted it upon him. So that by trusting in Him, we may receive forgiveness of sins and His Spirit in us. And that means that even if our lives don't look like we expect them to, we can look to the cross and say with confidence, I have Christ. I have true life with God. I am His child. Christ is enough. So what do we take from this passage? I've got kind of four things for us to take away today. The first one, I think, is that we need to see that God's salvation always entails a response of obedience. If we're to call Jesus our Savior, we're also to call Him our Lord. We cannot just treat God as some genie in a bottle that bends to our will. He is holy. He is all-powerful. He is to be feared or revered. And having saved us now through Jesus... God calls us to trust Him and to obey Him by faith. Israel has been saved from slavery to be His holy set-apart people. We have been set free from slavery to sin and to condemnation to be God's holy set-apart people. Under the rule of a king who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows what we need, who is for us and not against us, so that we may shine the light of God into a world full of darkness. That's point one. Point two, I think we need to ask ourselves, what are our expectations about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? I don't want us to just walk away thinking, okay, I just need to grumble less or just feel guilty when I grumble. No, I think lying under that, are there misplaced expectations that we have about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Do we still think that we are the ones in control and at the center of our lives and that God is just here to kind of orbit around us? Do we believe that we know what we need more than God? Do we believe our timing is better than God or do we trust that God is in control to provide for us as we need, when we need it? Point three, I think we're to remember that the further we are away from the source of life, the more disconnected or disoriented we can become. 
And so I think we're to constantly make every effort, as the writer of Hebrews says, as long as today is called today, to encourage one another, to remind one another, not just of what we've been saved from, but to, to point one another to the Lord who goes before us and saved us by the blood of His Son, who gives us His Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come, the one that we will treasure and enjoy for eternity in our heavenly home. And lastly, I think, we're to look to the cross. If the antidote to entitlement is gratitude, then maybe what we need to do is, like Israel was commanded to in, um, time and time again in the Old Testament, we're to remember. They were, they were to remember who God is and what He did for them. We are to marvel at what Christ did for us on the cross and what it cost God to rescue us, to save us, and to forgive us. Let me pray for us. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we need and you provide for us in so many amazing ways, in even many more ways, in many ways more than we ask. Thanks that you provide for us what we need when we need it. And Lord, forgive us of when we have too small a picture of you. Forgive us when we expect to call the shots, where we treat you as a genie God that bends to our will. Help us to remember that you haven't just saved us from our sin, but to obedience. And Lord, thanks that in spite of how often we treat you, you respond by sending us Jesus who meets our deepest needs, who paid the price for us, paid the price for our sin on the cross, who gives us identity and fulfillment, forgiveness and relationship. Help us to trust in you in all seasons and all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we do every week, we're going to take some time now to, to reflect. You might want to take that time to um, read back over what we've just heard from God's Word or, or to pray, and then we're going to come back together and sing.